Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. For the past 10 years, Headspace schools have been working across the country, supporting Australian schools across the spectrum of mental health literacy, suicide prevention, risk management and recovery. Kristen Douglas is the National Manager and Head of Headspace Schools. Kristen joins us as today's podcast guest to chat about the importance of a whole school approach in promoting student well-being. We also discuss the role of educators and administrators in preparing for and responding to suicide risk attempts and suicide impacting schools. As well as this, we chat about understanding the key components of suicide prevention and postvention work, as well as how to mitigate against the risk of suicide clusters forming. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Hello everybody, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Kristen Douglas. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks Sam. Tell us a little bit about, or tell our listeners a little bit about your background and professionally uh, and how you got to where you are. I actually started in education a long time ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. I was a school principal and worked for Department of Education in policy and eventually ended up in mental health and wellbeing and with Headspace and I've been with Headspace for about the last nine years. For those listeners who don't know, Headspace is probably the largest youth mental health platform in the OECD. Really significant investment by Australia. About 160 Headspace centres all over the country and a whole range of other strategies and things. And I lead a really large division of incredible professionals with the main view being communities and school communities because we know that that's where a lot of detection of issues happen. But also there's a huge amount of space to actually do lots of prevention and early intervention as well. Wow. It's a, it's a big project and a big team but doing amazing things around Australia as you mentioned. Tell us, what made you want to get into education to start with? Was it, were you folks in it? Were you, did no. you just something that you wanted to have a passion for kids and teaching? Or? No, I'm from farming stock, so no, no one's an educator. Oh, there <laughs> you farmers. go. No, I actually wanted to be a federal police officer, but the year that I wanted to apply for that, it wasn't at my local university. I was still helping the family run the farm. And, of course, you know, this is... 90s, mid-90s, teaching, education, conduit. It was a good thing. You knew you could go overseas and do it. and So, yeah, I ended up in education and have diversified ever since. Mm. 
And so was it when you were at school doing your first few years of teaching and you were a principal as well, I understand. So was it during those points where maybe you experienced it at your school where you saw these challenges arising and you didn't know quite how to cope with it or the teachers weren't – was it something you identified then as something that you wanted to do more in? How did that, how did that come to be? Oh, look, there was a couple of checkpoints. I actually did a whole range of things when I was teaching. I was primary school trained – and I knew that I really liked things about human relationships and human connection. And I'd actually majored in psych in my degree. And, I, you know, things just kind of fell in place. And one of the jobs that I took on was a job with the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. It was called Adolescent Forensic Health. And it was very much working with young people who were incarcerated. You could see them at their rawest, you know, and, the, and they were having a pretty tough time for a variety of reasons. And for me, it was a bit of a watershed moment of, how did all of these kids get here? You know, at some point these kids were little preppies and kinder kids in primary schools and at what point did their pathway sort of deviate? And it made me really interested in the prevention space and the early intervention space and I certainly went back um, into education with that frame and I spiralled off into this sort of mental health and wellbeing and, and knowing how important it is to education, to the level of engagement, to actually showing up, you know, for me it was far more important than curriculum and, you know, infrastructure and facilities of schools. It was about the humans and the connection. And so were there any programs back then that were addressing this? There were a few. Look, there was some national approaches. Kids Matter and Mind Matters actually had a really good brand and and we now are a key delivery partner for a new amalgamated version of those two programs called BU, which is incredible. If you don't know anything about BU, please visit the BU website. Mm -hmm. We partner with Early Childhood Australia. Clearly Headspace rolls it out across Australian schools and we work with Beyond Blue to do this. So some really large brands working in this space around mental health and wellbeing. But to be honest, Sam, it was just burgeoning. It was just becoming new. And I think there was some really incredible thought, you know, I guess people who were challenging systems and education back in the 90s and in 2000s, there was a lot more investment, not as much as we see now, but people started to realise schools were the universal platform for most social issues. And it, put, it started putting a lot of pressure on schools. And now we see, you know, almost the other end of the curve. The market's saturated. So we've gone from, you know, not having very much in this space to 10, 15 years later, there's so much schools don't know how to choose and don't know how to choose wisely and one of the things we don't want to do is just add to that saturation we want to make sure that we're really sophisticated that we're simple enough for schools to grab and and wrap their heads around so there's a sport for choice now in a lot of respects which is fantastic on on some things but then it's almost like yeah how do you choose how do you which ones how would they know which ones to choose because there are lots of different options out there Tell us, have you, which ones have you seen most effective? Obviously, the program that you guys are doing is, is really important, but can you tell us a bit about that as well? Well, I think it's important regardless of whether you're an individual, a family or an organisation, school community, doesn't matter. You need some really good skills about understanding what is evidence-based, understanding just because it feel, feels good doesn't mean that it's actually doing anything or has any impact. And I think people are getting a little bit smarter about how they scaffold those questions you know, is, is, has there been any evaluation done on this? Who's the target audience? What does it take to implement this well? And I think schools really, really want to lean into enhancing their mental health and wellbeing of all three audiences that they've got. They've got their kids, they've got their staff and they've got their parents and their families. They want to choose the right thing. And I think there's such a continuum 
that they need to choose wildly. So part of what we're doing through BU is giving people the skills to choose wildly, what program, what service and what impact sits behind those. Okay, so you guys almost help with the criteria yeah. and then and then leave it up to them to look through their own lens. And we're, we're working with departments of education, Catholic sectors and independent to also have a bit of a, a schema about how they make these decisions because governments invest mm. in strategies and then we roll these strategies out hoping that they're going to, you know, create good change. One of the things that BU does have, this national framework that I'm talking about, is a programs guide where they go through a, a reasonably rigorous sort of washing machine of evaluation and they have to meet certain criteria and then they can go on the programs guide for schools and schools can look through that programs guide. There's a lot of well-meaning people out there that are doing stuff in this space as a result of, you know, an unfortunate incident through their, whether it's people they know, their family members or what have you. It's And it's it's so localised in a lot of areas and and they're out there trying to do the best with their energy to try and help prevent these things happening to other kids, whether it's just, mental, you know, mental ill health or suicide ideation or whatever it is. But do you feel like if there's momentum or if there's a way to bring them together, because some of them have their own unique aspects and focus that they're trying to do, where it almost adds to the overwhelm of the different choices out there. And there are a lot of well-meaning organisations or charities that are starting. It's like, how do you support them all and which one's the most effective, right? You start a membership-based organisation like you've done, I imagine. Mm. And look, there's really good organisations like the one that you're heading up, Sam. You know, Suicide Prevention Australia essentially is aimed at grabbing all of those little sort of groundswell programs. And you're right. You know, when a bereaved family loses a young person to suicide, the first thing they want to do is say, actually, we don't want this to happen to any other family. And you've got to validate and respect that that's the process they want to go through, which is fantastic. But you do have this huge propagation of local, you know, pop-up startups, things that are happening, little foundations, little programs. I think as bigger agencies and as a membership organisation like yours, it's our job to guide that and it's our job to say, hey, actually, you might be creating further harm by doing that. That's a really hard conversation to have. Yeah, because their intention's really good, but you see them struggle, you know, because like a funding... Yep. They they have the passion but they don't know how to actually put a program or a framework around it but they have the drive. Yeah. But sometimes it necessarily doesn't always translate into you know having the outcome that they want which is no kid ever to go through it. It's it's a big challenge yeah. to 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 take on yourself. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent in in that we've got social media, we've got GoFundMe pages. Now don't get me wrong, I don't think it's a good thing to get rid of all of this potential rise and swell of small programs because it's those small programs that create innovation, that create, you know, a sense of maybe something different on the peripheral. But we need to be careful. They're, they're all on a continuum. And to create, you know, spaces in mental health sector, education sector, to guide people around national principles, national practice approaches, evidence and how people can choose more wisely – even just in the last six to 12 months, you can understand COVID's really impacted schools. The number one thing that we're getting asked about is staff wellbeing. And I'm just seeing this complete emergence of people coming into the education sector saying, we can look after your staff, let us do staff wellbeing. And again, they're on a continuum of snake oil to sensational practice. So we've got to be careful about the rise and rise of people coming into mental health and wellbeing. I think everyone thinks 
they kind of have something to control. And I think just generally we've got to be careful about making sure we always point out don't no further harm, you know, don't do any harm in what you're doing. And we work with some really great implementation scientists in Australia. So, you know, you, you take a seed of an idea, you take it to scale and you roll it out and you hope that fidelity sits behind it. I don't know that the word fidelity really exists anymore, but yeah, it's hard. You, you spot on it, super yeah. hard. There is a role to play with though, because you see them, they seem to engage and that have that authenticity with the local community because they were known, the, the people that, you know, that took their own lives were well known, they were respected or whatever in the local community. So as a result of that, people want to get behind it, which has that emotion behind that local uh, organisation trying to do something. But they just don't have the traction that something like a headspace has the ability to do with the evidence-based stuff behind it. But then you also need that stigma or around people wanting to be okay to go into a headspace versus picking up a yarn having a yarn to somebody who's been through it there's that sort of a gap isn't there and, and is there an opportunity there to bring that together to try and build the bridge between those, that sort of those two different I think so I, I sit on the Sydney Meyer Foundation around mental health and well-being philanthropic funding and and we inevitably every quarter look at a whole range of small sort of ground up projects and, and throw a bit of money at ones that look like diamonds in the rough. And I think it's really important that we do give oxygen and support to the programs which are showing really good early signs of prevention, early intervention, postvention. But I'm also under no illusion, you know, metropolitan doesn't have the same issues as regional, rural, remote. I, I grew up on a farm where there was no services. In fact, yeah. the nearest town is 50 k's away. There's no headspace centre there. There's no you know, around-the-clock mental health service or medical service. So if somebody who's an ex-farmer wants to start up a program when he drives around talking to other farmers and it's got some impact uh, and he's reaching people, mm -hmm. fantastic. But but how do we regulate that? How do we support that? Mm -hmm. How do we guide it? And how do we, you know, make sure that it's directed in the right space? We're seeing... We're seeing the rise of the peer workforce and the importance of that in the sector and and the outcomes that that's having for people that are experiencing mental ill health. Kids as well, which is really uh, a really big focus of it. But tell us, what sort of role do you see that playing and how important is that in the stuff that you guys are doing? I think it's fantastic. I mean, the, the number one thing that we're all faced with in the mental health sector, the health sector, education sector included, is this shortage of workforce. Mm. Um, we're never going to have enough social workers or psychologists or OTs and all of those beautiful, really gifted, skilled people, we need another layer. And that layer will help us buffer this really extended out waitlist time. And if I come into a mental health service like a headspace centre and I get told it's six weeks wait or two weeks wait, but someone's going to sit alongside you and do some social prescribing and, you know, invite you into an art therapy space until we get a counsellor ready for you, that's sensational. That's, mm. you know, that's already working for me. And I think we really need to think differently about how we lean into this workforce base. People are going to inevitably make changes to their life after COVID. It was, you know, it was a revelation revealing for lots of people about what they want in life. It doesn't surprise me that people want to leave school jobs. It doesn't surprise me that people want to leave mental health jobs where they're holding more acuity and more risk than ever before and a greater volume than ever before. It's pretty impactful on yourself, on your kids, on your relationship. So we're going to have to reconstruct 
and change the discourse of how we support humans. And the number one thing we've got to do is reconnect with humans. And connection doesn't just take a psychologist or a social worker. Connection can be somebody walking into that early childhood centre, that mental health service, that aged care home, you know, therapy dogs, art therapy, this social prescribing, you know, as long as it's guided Mm. and, again, as long as it's got a bit of evidence behind it, there's so many other people who can lean into this space and help. So I think we have to be really open to it. I think Headspace is doing a a really good job where we've got a uh, student program that we're running at the moment. The government's throwing a lot of money at it. We're trying to get young people or anyone who's just out of uni, they've just graduated, they want to come in and do a scholarship with us. So there's lots of pathways in and we need to think differently. Tell us about the importance of prevention in schools and the main challenges around that. What, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, as an ex-principal and educator, the main challenge is 90% of your time is taken up with the, the problematic stuff. Yeah. So to go up, you know, go upstream and do the prevention and the health promotion is really, really important. But finding time, finding space, finding the right resources and the right people is also really important. There's four simple things that we're trying to do with Australian schools through our division – We're trying to promote these four things because we think they're really important in the next couple of years. The first one is increase the mental health literacy of everyone in your school. So all of the educators, let's click Mm. up their mental health literacy and understanding. That's their awareness, their skills, um, how they understand emotional regulation, you know, all the good social emotional sort of stuff that they should have. So that's for the teachers, for the young people and for the parents. Everyone's mental health literacy up. The second objective is get everyone's help seeking up for the kids, for the teachers and for the parents. And what I mean by that is I think we construct this amazing mental health system in Australia and we assume that people are born, part of their DNA, how to lean into a mental health system, how to put their hand up and sound wobbly and it's a complete myth. There is a heap of people in my life who will never have the capacity to put their hand up. They just weren't yeah. born with a bit of vulnerability in them. Some people are really good at it, some people aren't. So there's a key role for schools to develop this skill. So help-seeking and help-receiving is the second one. The third one is increase everyone's understanding and access to services and how to lean into a service. So when do I go to a GP? When do I go to my school counsellor? When do I go to the hospital system? All of those sorts of things. How do I lean into the system? And the last one is detecting, managing and monitoring risk and prevention and responding to risk. And I think if you do those four things with the students, with the educators, with the parents. It's a really holistic national framework to improving the skills of the people on the outside of the system and hopefully that helps the system. Is that when you mentioned the whole school approach, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. The three three parts. The three audiences. And running in tandem with those three audiences and those four objectives, you know, improve mental literacy, improve help Mm -hmm. seeking, improve access, prevent risk – is this prevention mental health continuum. So I'm feeling okay, you know, I'm doing health promotion, prevention of myself and others and blah, blah, blah. I'm starting to get a bit wobbly. What do I notice when I'm getting a bit wobbly? Where do I, where do I go? How do I get back to balance? And we use this concept of a battery. Like if you imagine the four or five kind of little columns that make up an iPhone battery, when you're running low on battery, you're not functioning, you're not coping, you those sorts of things. What do you do to plug in? And what can be done for you to plug in and get a bit more battery back in, you know, and and juice you up a bit, let alone 
versus when I'm getting towards that red and the warning signs going off, what do I do now? And maybe I might, might need some support in accessing help. But that that help-seeking thing that I was talking about, if you look at suicide statistics for Australia, when are you most likely to die by suicide? It's in your middle age, mostly for men, but, you know, from that 25 to 45 to 50 age group. That says to me a huge amount of stuff happens for you in those age groups. Lots of tipping points, lots of pressures, lots of external environmental sort of things going on and internal things, maybe mental illnesses come to the surface. But also, why is it that we get to our 30s and 40s and we're not very good help seekers? Why do we, you know, have very complex moments in our life and, and we find it hard to tell people? Mm. So I'm interested, I'm really interested if we deeply invest in help seeking, skill building in kids right now, What's that going to look like in ten years' time? And it's money well invested, isn't it? Really? Yeah, there is a there is a paradox though. The more you give people skills in mental health literacy and help seeking, what happens? The more they lean into the system, the system blows wide open. So we've got to have a mental health system that actually can deal with the size of the beast that will be revealed. That's a complex thing for government, for communities, and for society. The more we give kids skills in schools and family skills and educator skills. Yeah. The more this grows, this, you know, understanding, well, people are going to want to help and they're mm. going to want help early. And if the system's not responsive, it's going to be really complex. And there's also the, like, there's a really important place here as well for the well-being side of things, right? To, for, for people in the space to promote well-being, tools, tips, strategies for coping. I mean, that's, that's a big part of it in itself too, right? Yeah. The other day I went to the 10th anniversary of Smiling Minds, a really great partner of ours. You know, organisations like that are doing an incredible effort around giving people like, you know, here is an app that's on your phone 24-7 and I know there's issues with social media and phones, whatever, but here is an app that's accessible. It's in your pocket. It's everywhere in Australia. It's with people. It gives people some power and empowering in their own mental health. So things like that are really good basic things we should be offering Australians and... I just think giving people more skills and more capacity to actually keep their mental health and well-being in check, mm. hopefully it does alleviate some of that more acuity and risk that comes through to the surface. I agree with that. Let's talk about the the role of educators, administrators as far as reducing risk of suicide at schools. I mean, it's too many kids. We're losing the life still. What, what are we missing? Where's the opportunities here and, and what role do they play? It's really hard, such a complex subject in that losing someone to suicide is always incredibly and profoundly hard. Losing a child to suicide feels another edge entirely. And I think schools who've gone through the loss of a young person or, or educator, you know, it really ripples through the entire community. It really challenges all of their threshold when it comes to coping and responding. And one of the things that we run through Headspace is this incredible national postvention response service so every time a young person dies by suicide and they're connected to a school our team um, goes in there and supports the school supports the department supports the sector the thing i'd say about suicide is risk is getting younger than ever before we're seeing you know suicide risk and mental health risk in primary schools like we've never seen before there's a variety of reasons for that the second thing is we used to see a bit of a gender difference, but I think genders around young people. So, I mean, without being, you know, in that dichotomy space of boys and girls, in terms of the suicide data, girls have caught up in terms of risk. But if you look at the adult data, 
nine people a day die by suicide, seven are men, two are women. So it changes in the upper age group. Mm. But in the younger age group, it's a much more even balance, which is a terrible way to describe it. The other thing is around most states and territories and even nationally, we have reasonably good and detailed suicide prevention plans. We don't have youth-specific ones. So what what I would really like to see different in terms of policy is when the Commonwealth Government releases this fantastic 22-point document on how we're going to prevent suicide in Australia, there has to be a sub-child and youth-specific plan because there's not. And what it takes to prevent a 50-year-old man from dying is completely different to what it takes to prevent a 13-year-old girl from dying. The last thing is probably the most complex thing. We we did some really interesting research and it was, it, was, it was very hard to sit with. We went back and retrospectively looked at a whole range of coronial records of young people who died by suicide and 50% had never been anywhere near the school counsellor or the doctor or the system. So what does that tell you? It doesn't matter how many, again, social workers and psychologists you've got in those systems, if the most at-risk kids are not leaning into that system but they're at school tells you the power of the school. We have to be better at detection. We have to be better at asking and being okay with asking and knowing it's not going to create further risk if you ask in the right ways. And we just need to understand that I don't think, you know, anyone sits here and goes, oh, oh child and youth suicide isn't going up, so that's a good thing. Any death is a terrible tragedy for Australia. And like I said, there's a really significant role parents play, teachers play, mm kids themselves play because often they're detecting risk in their mates and that's nowhere near the mental health system. This is all transacting Monday to Friday in the school playground, which is why we're so deeply invested in schools. We're seeing seeing schools want to be more proactive in this area to want to be a part of the solution, which is good. That The teachers already have a lot of things on their plate and how is – is there – I mean, what's the opportunity there for them where it's – you know, it's not taking away from what they already have to do and the burden that's already facing the teachers themselves. But they want to be part of the solution. I mean, how do we find a program that is going to be conducive to something they can actually apply in their day-to-day and have the room to do it and, and do it well? Yeah. Well, I don't know that there's one program, yeah. one magic bullet. We have to have schools that are prepared to look holistic at this. So that means they're prepared to work with the kids and building skills, the educators and building skills and the family. We have to have schools that are prepared to do lots of capacity building and and training of their staff. We have to have schools that are prepared to have really good partnerships with the Headspace Centre up the road and with the GPs in their area and with private clinicians and, and social workers and private practitioners. We need schools to understand that this isn't a subject that you teach. And interestingly, the Australian curriculum's about to get revealed, the new Australian curriculum. And where's mental health and wellbeing? It's stuck in the same old silo of health and PE. But for me, health and wellbeing and mental health and engagement and safety, that's a whole school thing. That's not a subject. Mm. And I find that really challenging. The other thing is around the mental health and wellbeing of staff. We're, We're seeing classrooms and data in the OECD that Australia in 2018... Australia was ranked 70th out of 77 countries for the most disrupted and undisciplined classrooms. And that tells you a lot about school leaders and staff. They're exposed to a lot of violence. They're exposed to a lot of abuse. And that's not just from the kids. That's from parents as well. Mm. These are complex spaces. So it's not, you know, 
do one thing and it's going to fix this. It's a whole range of things and it's got to be led by the school principal and the school principal has to be as much about literacy and numeracy as they are as, are as safety and wellbeing. And every year we do the NAP plan with kids where we measure their literacy compared to all other kids. Mm. We measure their numeracy. I'd love a social and emotional NAP plan. Wouldn't that be terrific? Mm. You choose your school based on that as opposed to how well they teach your young person to read or add up. That's a good point and... Yeah, I mean, you just feel for those teachers sometimes with the with the lack of resources sometimes that they, you know, they have all this stuff to do and the time to do it in can really suffer. So you just want to make sure that the important things don't get swept aside and they actually do take the time to look after the kids and their, and their mental health and well-being. As we look at moving onto the parent side of things, there's things that the parents can be doing at home. Are we talking just investing in themselves, doing online programs? Are we talking about the dinners at the the conversation at the dinner tables, we're talking about, you know, where are you feeling today, Lucy, on this on this chart? Are you feeling happy? That sort of stuff. Having those conversations, normalising them at home a lot more. Is that where we're, where we're heading well, with that? All of that is fantastic and then plus, plus, plus. You know, schools that invite parents in to have a conversation with other parents. Oh, you're an older parent than me. Did you ever deal with this issue? Yes, I did. This mm. is how we're... So connecting peer-to-peer parents is really important. Lots of like I said, social prescribing sort of programs where parents can go, my young person's participating in art therapy or music therapy and it makes it less hard that when you do see a problem rise up, they're able to lean in in a different way. They don't feel like something's gone wrong or they've failed and I think that's really important. Lots of mental health literacy, lots of understanding help seeking and sometimes it's just about basic stuff. How to react if your child says something a bit edgy like, you know, or school calls you up and says, look, we've We've found your daughter and she's cutting and self-harming and just some basic support for parents around that space. We've got some really good peer-moderated sessions that we do online for parents and we've got some ones for young people. We're seeing a real emergence of young people and non-binary and transgender and, you know, setting up support groups for young people, for schools, for families. They're all key. Mums and dads massive in that often, you know, you've got to trust your gut. I've got two little girls and, and if I feel like one of them's off, inevitably one of them is because, I, you know, I can sense it, I can see it and mm. I think we wait too long to do something about that. We go, oh, look, if it gets worse, I'll do something about it. But actually let's do something that's a preventative thing. Let's do something to get them back into good balance before they get too far down the track. I always, always, every week I sit with my little girls and at least once or twice a week I say, Daisy, who's five, she's starting school this year, and Evie, who's nine, and they know this. It's become part of our dinner language. Hey, boo, zero to ten, how was your day today? I had an eight, mum. I'm like, that's terrific. What made it an eight? And I get her to recount and recall the things that made it good. Mm. And when she goes, oh, I had a three out of ten, I say, well, that sounds tough. What happened? She describes. She's using a language. She's developing those skills. I'm like, um, what would it take to be a five or a six out tomorrow? Knowing it's not going to be a ten, mm. but what would a little thing, what can mum do, what can you do, what could the school do? And giving her language and narrative mm. and just a little scale is fantastic. And I'll ask questions like, hey, if you had a magic wand, what would make life better at the moment? Mm. Or is there anything keeping you awake at night? Is there anything you want mum to hear about this week? Mm. And just having some really good one-liners and some questions just – propagate some really beautiful conversation and it teaches them how to talk to their mates about mental health and it teaches them how to have a completely different 
um, set of skills than what we had when we got out of school, you know. Yeah. Sounds way more effective than saying, how was your day? And they say, good. And then you're like, <laughs> then you got nowhere to is go. that it? <laughs> Come on, tell me something. Yeah, that's really interesting. But but that again, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like it's it's logical, but but the execution on trying to bring parents up to speed with this, I mean, it's no easy task, is it? No. It takes a and it's, it's repetition. And I like I like to refer to this as... You know, it's the sort of it's the little things that you do, but it's the little things every day. It's not sort of big grandiose things that you do as a parent. It's the little stuff every day, putting in those habits. And now Evie, who's nine, and she's had me doing this with her for a number of years, she doesn't need me to ask her anymore. She has the capacity and the space now to come straight up to me at the end of the day and say, "Mum, in tears, I had a one out of ten today. I don't want to talk about it now, but can we talk about it later?" Mm. And I immediately know. That I need to do something about that, but she doesn't need me to ask. She can. She now has that language, and it's really important. They've got to give parents those skills to impart on their kids. And so, when, when is the question phrased? How was your day out of one to ten, or is it phrased? Are you happy today on a scale of one to ten? Like, where are you? I'm sure you can practice and do a whole range of things. Yeah. You know, how was your day out of ten? We often do. What was the best thing that happened today? What was the hardest or most challenging thing that happened yep. today? How are your relationships going at the moment? You know, what can you do differently to be a better friend? So there's, a, there's some really beautiful sort of things and you just need to look up social and emotional language skills and you'll find lots of good one-liners. Yeah. If we go to look at postvention, tell us about that and the importance that that's playing because, I mean, this could be devastating to a school if a suicide occurs. But tell us about what, what can happen after that and how the impact can be, I guess, some coping mechanisms and yeah. stuff like that for the, for the school and the community. So I think suicide prevention is a reasonably well-known term to people, but postvention not so much. Postvention is responding when something's happened. Doesn't matter what you put in place to buffer or protect your community or your kids or whatever whatever happens is. And postvention can be for individuals. So you can do postvention with a bereaved family and walk alongside them as they go through grief and loss and short, you know, sort of immediate impacts in the first twenty-four hours, first week through to medium to longer term impacts. You know, I don't think you ever get over that. You you grow around it, you don't ever grow past it. So postvention for individuals, I think, has been probably a more known thing. And we've partnered with some terrific and amazing organisations like Standby, who are a natu- national organisation paid to work with families in suicide. Postvention for communities or school communities is a work that we've been doing and leading. We've got this world-class service that we've been running for 10 years and it's really hard. You can imagine what it's like to be a principal. You get a phone call Monday morning. One of your year seven or year eight kids has died by suicide over the weekend. And you don't get taught anything in teacher's college or no. principal school on how to respond to that. And it's not like any other incident. It's different to someone dying by um, suicide or car crash or, you know, a typical critical incident because the thing about suicide postvention, if you don't really, really adhere to the evidence, the thing, you know, there's a lot of risks that can come after. And sadly, some of the work that we do is where we see clusters, contagion or or social transmission, and as a term called exposure. So So we've built this toolkit for schools, which takes you from the first hour that you find out through to the first day, the first week, the first month, through to the first year, the first two, three, four years. So we keep a relationship with these schools. And... If you do it well, you can contain risk. If you don't adhere to the evidence, 
things you do can actually increase risk and exposure. And we've got to be really careful that we understand the evidence around, you know, not canonising people or, or not putting people on a pedestal who've died by suicide because it may feel more to someone else. And really interestingly, when we see an adult, a known influence or figure, die by suicide in the media, if they say the wrong things, they share information about the method or they, you know, simplify why that person died or, the, or they have really detailed information that's unhelpful we see suicide rates in Australia go up. Mm. So we are really careful working with schools to say these are the helpful things to do right now, these are the harmful things to do right now, without judgement, but we need to be really yeah. careful. Clusters occur and they're, sadly I, I would suggest that they're increasing across Australia and we need to contain and, and really respond thoughtfully and in a considered way. And is that all the discretion of the principal and how that's carried out? It is. I mean, all we can do is is give them the best evidence yeah. and say, look, this is the world-class evidence. You don't need to be an expert in this. Let's sit up, sit alongside you and, and guide you, like the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage, as we say. But the principal knows their community. They take all of the available evidence and they take all of the available advice and information and they make a decision. And sometimes it's, you know, spot on. Sometimes we have principals thinking they're doing really good things and they end up in a really complicated space. And it comes down to the way you support memorials for that family mm. and the way you speak about that young person. And it's not just, like I said, in the immediate aftermath. It's, you know, a year 12 young person dies in term one. How do you celebrate them at the year 12 graduation at the end of the year? Like all of these really complicated things school leaders and, and educators have to manage. I can imagine it being quite complex and when you're going through it at the time, I mean to have a toolkit there or a guide to yeah. hold your hand through that process would be super, super appreciative but also just try and lessen the burden a little bit more on, on what they're going through to try and help them through it. Yeah, and look, sadly in the, the eight or nine years that we've been running this you know, postvention service nationally, we've probably responded to almost 3,000 suicides. So there's nothing we haven't wow. seen. And sadly, that has included suicide, suicides in the community, suicides of really little and young people, uh, suicides of principals. And, and we have everything from scripts through to resources, through to fact sheets for parents. But again, the main thing we do is walk alongside people mm. as they help respond and go through that process. And are all those tools free uh, for people to access or is it paid service? No, no, it's all funded through the Commonwealth. Most of Headspace work that we do, and whether it's state, government or Commonwealth Health, fund it. But the thing I would probably caution people is you can go onto the web and download our toolkit, but nothing is as good as having someone kind of guide that or walk alongside of you. So I would err on the caution of saying, grab the toolkit and go and do it yourself when something happens. We wouldn't want that. We're, we've got so much experience in this space and so much learning that we sit alongside departments and dioceses and independent associations. We work in partnership with them. We don't just want any, I guess, random person downloading the toolkit yeah. and saying, hey, I heard your school had a suicide, let me help. Um, yeah. That's where we see really, really complex things happen in towns. Again, often through good intent, but we see risk increasing. And typically where we've seen one or a couple of suicides in a town or region, we see really increased suicide ideation. We see increased attempts for the many months after. And sadly, sometimes we see subsequent, we take this stuff really serious. 
Well, I mean, the repercussions are serious, aren't they, if we get it wrong. So, I mean, it's important and it makes sense to try and do it as best you can. So it's great work that you guys are doing out there. Kristen, you've obviously done a lot in your career to date. Tell us moving forward, I mean, where are you headed and what's going on? Time to take up some gardening or something. Uh. Oh, no, I've got two little girls and I'm really still very invested in, in working with schools. I think there's so many kids that are in our education system, four million kids go to schools every day of the week and I've got a real commitment and Headspace has a real commitment to working with schools, to working with communities, to working with systems and system leaders, to getting the best we can. I think the next 10 years in mental health and wellbeing in Australia is just going to be massive and and if we don't do it well, we can really miss this opportunity window. You know, the, the 0 to 12 mental health framework for young people and children and young people that Recently in Australia has been released. There's national suicide prevention plans. There's a significant amount of money being poured into this space. We need to make sure that we do the best bang for buck job that we can. I, I don't know that I'll leave anytime soon. I know I will eventually. Maybe I'll go back to being a school principal. <laughs> but I don't know. Who knows? Well, I mean, just the, I mean, the leverage and the impact that you can make at the moment is so broad and so large that such a good use of your time to try and reach more people with the programs that you're heading up. Yeah, and and look, there'll always be plenty of work. And I love that it's a space that's being invested in. I love that Headspace, Beyond Blue and, and many, many, many more of our partners are really trying to search for innovation. They're trying to get to people in the quickest way they can where they're at. You know, wherever you live or wherever you are in Australia, we're trying to reach you and we're going to have to be really creative about that. Mm. Well, Kristen, how can people get a hold of you or the team, what they do? They can Google, simple, or you can go to the Headspace website, which is headspace.org.au, or you can uh, Google Headspace Schools, which is our particular division. We're hoping that most schools and departments of ed know how to get in touch with us. If you don't, you can certainly Google us and get in contact with your state and territory team. Like I said, we've got really terrific partnerships all over the country with the mental health sector, but the education sector are really critical levers. And we're doing great work, not only with students, with the educators, but also mums and dads. One of the biggest things we've done since is these parent online parent webinars and forums. And we can get upwards of two, three, four hundred parents dialing into this, just a quick 30 minutes. You know, you're in home. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to get childcare. You don't have to do anything. You just listen, get a couple of tips, hear me talk about you. How was your day one to ten? You're like, the great, that's the one thing I walk away with. So we're, we're trying to reach all different layers of the family, which is really good. Last question, Kristen. What does the end look like? What's the – how do we know that we've made it? I know that there's a, an economic term called the J-curve and I'm – I'm creating a J, honey, you can see it, but it's like a side-on J. And they apply it to a lot of social problems. And my theory or thinking is in the next 10 years, if we do a really good job, we're going to upskill all Australians in mental health and wellbeing. They're going to have better skills, better awareness than ever before, ever in our entire existence. But if you give that to Australians, we better have a really responsive mental health system. We better have really well-equipped schools and hospitals and services and headspace centres. But not everyone needs to go through to a service. I'm hoping that the problem looks like it gets worse for a little bit because it's really revealing that size of that beast thing. But after a while, it starts to calm down a little bit. Now suicide rate drops. 
and our, you know, risk and attempt spaces drop and our ability to manage our health so we don't get so bad that we need a service gets better. So I'm optimistic. I, I may be, you know, well and truly gone before we see all of that yeah. eventuate. But I just think the amount of investment and time that's happening, and you you will have seen this as much as I have, things have significantly changed just in two decades. Yes. So in two decades' time, I hope we've fixed the environment, the NBN for Australia, all of the mental health issues, you know, and and we're living really prosperously. I, I feel like Australia is such a incredible country where we connect schools and families and, and we're on, you know, we're cutting edge. Mm. When you look at other countries, they come to us, they ask us, can we have your headspace model? Can we have organisations like Lifeline and Beyond Blue? And I think we forget that we're actually really, really impressive in this space worldwide. Is that right? Mm. Other countries are looking to us. Yeah. Wow. We've, got, we've got other developed countries that want to implement headspace in a similar model. Wow. But, I mean, it's I don't know if their government's prepared to pay for it. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, obviously you guys are already well down the path. Headspace is doing some amazing things nationally across many different facets of the community. We thank you for uh, leading the space with the Headspace Schools Program and, and your role with them as well as national manager. So keep up the great work. Was there anything you want to say in closing? No, just thanks to your organisation. I, I think it really does play a critical role in drawing people into the arena, but also into conversations about are we running our organisations and our memberships and, you know, running the conferences and developing people's skills and testing what they know about contemporary spaces. I think it's really important. So, you know, good, good on you for what you do. Well, thanks very much, Kristen. We appreciate your time and thanks for sharing your story and uh, all that wonderful stuff with our listeners. Thanks, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.